Well, hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Queerdo. I wasn't sure how quickly I'd be turning these out, but I figured, I don't know, I'll just keep everybody on their toes for now. And um, until I decide on a, on a schedule, you'll be at my mercy. How does that sound? <laughs> uh, before I reveal to you what we're going to talk about today, I wanted to chat with you. I don't know if I'm going to make this a regular thing, but one thing I would like to do is... Um, throw some queer media your way. Um, I always feel a lot more, um, kind of at home when I'm watching something that's, uh, queer relevant or has queer themes in it or has a queer writer. Um, and I've just recently been watching, I've been obsessed with, uh, Schitt's Creek. I don't know if you've heard about Schitt's Creek. Um, but it is, it's sort of similar to Arrested Development. And if you know me, I really like, you know, shorter comedic TV shows, Office, Parks and Rec, Arrested Development, uh, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, stuff like that. Because it's like, you know, you can sit down and you can eat dinner and watch that, or you can have that on in the background while you're, um, you know, cleaning or whatever. It's not too heavy. It's not too, um, I don't, not meaningful, but it's, it's not too meaty so that you can't enjoy yourself. It's lighthearted. Um, and it's quick so that if you need to get something done, you can watch an episode and it's no big deal. Right. Um, so Schitt's Creek, it's, it's very similar to Arrested Development. If you like Arrested Development, um, I really enjoy Arrested Development, but it is one of those shows where it's like, it's a dysfunctional family drama about a very rich family that, uh, undergoes some very difficult financial issues, um, as well as some possible criminal charges and the comedy of it is the family, is the dysfunction, right? Is that here are these very rich people who just don't understand how to function as normal people without millions of dollars at their disposal. Um, and Schitt's Creek is kind of similar. Uh, it's a family, they're, you know, millionaires, and then uh, through some bad trading deals um, that are made with their money, they basically have all their... Um, all their, uh, everything taken away from them, you know, and they have to move to this little town that they own, um, called Schitt's Creek. And of course it's, you know, in the middle of podunk nowhere, everyone's a redneck and here they are, these incredibly, uh, well-to-do wealthy people who are now dirt poor and have to survive, um, in this very, uh, small conservative town. So I wasn't sure I would like it because I feel like shows like that can kind of be depressing. Um, and I also think, you know, when you have a show where the, the humor in it is a dysfunctional family drama, um, it's very hard to continue that humor over several seasons and arrested development. I don't really know how they do it so well because it is, you know, it's five seasons and the characters don't change that much. Um, and it, it re like requires the characters to be these, very heightened, ridiculous personas that really can't change or else you lose the humor of the TV show. Um, but Schitt's Creek, I feel like is actually, um, a little bit better than that in the sense that it's like, you do see over four seasons, the characters change, um, they grow, they adapt. And what begins as look at these like kind of funny people who are so, um, socially unaware and just so like used to their lifestyle that they're just like completely inept to 
you know, do their own laundry basically and, and to, to survive in a motel. But what I like about it is that yes, the characters remain these kind of over the top, um, ridiculous characters. But by the end of season four, I just finished it. Um, just last night, it really does shift the characters while they're still these personas. They're so, uh, you begin to root for them, you know? Um, and I think that that's what's kind of brilliant. Um, it's written by, I believe, um, Eugene and, um, Dan Levy, I believe is his name. Let me double check on that. Um, but, uh, they write the show together and they star in it and, um, it is incredibly, uh, it's witty, it's funny, but it's still very heartwarming at the same time. And that's something I really love. Plus, if you're interested, it is Daniel Levy, by the way. Um, If you're interested, it does have, you know, uh, Daniel Levy plays David Rose, who is a pansexual, um, who, you know, obviously is living in this kind of small town. And what's interesting about it is I was really concerned that this show was going to be very focused on, like, the town not accepting his queerness. And it never really comes up, which I thought was really interesting. Um... And he has, you know, lovers of the same sex, lovers of the opposite sex. Um, and then, of course, in seasons, um, I believe it starts in season three and uh, kind of comes to a head in season four. But he finds um, this wonderful boyfriend, Patrick. And it's like their love story is just like, it's really honest and sweet. Um, and it isn't kind of that typical gay love story by any means. Um So I would definitely uh, suggest that it's, you know, like I said, incredibly funny, incredibly heartwarming. Um, It features uh, Catherine O'Hara as well, who is one of my favorites. Uh, She just has this incredibly hilarious over the top um, persona. I mean, she, she plays a basically a retired actress in that show and just the way that she holds herself and her fashion and just like, she has this kind of like, pseudo European accent that she's created because she is an actress. That's really funny. But of course, you know me, I'm uh, obsessed with these kind of like older, old, wealthy, bitchy types. Like Lucille Bluth is one of my favorite television characters of all time because she's so dry, but so poised. And she's always like dressed to the nines and got like, you know, uh, uh, a mojito in her hand and she's like always constantly eye rolling and just like delivering these funny quips. So Catherine's Catherine O'Hara's character is very similar, a, a lot more approachable than Lucille Bluth. Absolutely. But, but definitely funny, really worthwhile. Um, definitely an incredible, uh, show to watch, especially if you want to, um, support some queer artists. I would also highly suggest She-Ra. Um, if you haven't watched that, that's also on Netflix. It is uh, a reboot of the She-Ra series. Um, from the eighties, but it's kind of got a new twist to it. What I love about it is it is, um, it was rebooted by, uh, I believe a queer woman and, um, it's absolutely like a cartoon, but it's still like the aesthetic of it is this really interesting, like kind of retro eighties. So it's kind of futuristic, but still eighties. Um, there's a really great queer element to it. Several of the characters are very outwardly queer, um, at the very end, two of the princesses are, are very obviously in a relationship. And then, um, She-Ra and Katra, there's kind of a romance, a sort of a romance there. If you want to look into it, 
Um, it is one of the best animated shows I think I've ever seen. Um, I would say it's almost right up there with like Legend of Korra and Avatar. It isn't as um, maybe as uh, complicated or or as in depth as Avatar uh, and that universe is, but it's still really beautiful to look at. Like the aesthetic of it is really beautiful. And then like it's, it's heartwarming and it's very queer in the sense of um, the themes and kind of just finding out who you are. Um, plus there's a lot of like very outwardly, like, like She-Ra, the character, um, is very androgynous looking. So when she transforms into this princess, it's very cool because she's like this very muscular androgynous, um, kind of vaguely trans character, which I really appreciated, um, which is really, really cool. And then like some of the men definitely have like more feminine aspects, which is really nice to see. And you have like, um, I don't remember her name, but there's like the scorpion princess who works with a horde. Who's like, definitely got a very like queer vibe to her as well. Definitely, um, queer from top to bottom. It reminded me a lot of Steven universe. Um, but I would say maybe even a lighter mood than Steven Universe because I feel like Steven Universe can sometimes be very sad. So it's definitely like a great um, TV show for kids, but also I think it's it's just as enjoyable for adults. Um, definitely something to look into if you're interested in that sort of a thing. Uh, my last suggestion, I would definitely suggest if you haven't watched um, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, season two is on Amazon, which is great. Um, I love Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. It isn't particularly queer in the sense of the word, I guess, but it's still um, got a lot of queer themes. If you don't know, it's about a, a woman who her husband leaves her and she gets drunk one night and basically goes to a club and she ends up accidentally uh, basically doing a stand-up routine about her husband who has just left her and uh, meets the woman who later becomes her manager and, uh, it's sort of just her life as this, you know, uh, very not wealthy, but kind of a well-to-do, um, Jewish woman and her life after she's been left, basically, um, it takes place in the, I believe in the late fifties. So it, it really examines like, she's a woman who not only ha is dealing with being single, which is not truly appropriate for her at that time and kind of looked down upon, but also becoming a comedian, which at the time, a uh, female comedian just wasn't a thing. And uh, that was very looked down upon. So it's really wonderful in the sense that it's got a lot of queer themes when it comes to, um, you know, dealing with family drama and feeling like you can't be yourself around your family, um, dealing with kind of being against societal norms and having to brave other people's opinions about your lifestyle, even though you think this is who I really am. Right. Plus, um, her manager is very obviously a queer character. Um, I've watched all through season two and they haven't by any means discussed her sexuality, but it's very obvious that she's, um, kind of on the queer spectrum. Um, and it's sort of this running joke that everyone assumes that she's a man. Um, so it's sort of, uh, very, very, queer friendly, I would say. And just, again, it is beautifully shot. The costumes are beautiful. It's well, um, well made in the sense that it's like everything from the soundtrack to the sets, um, to the writing, like it's all just a, a beautiful, 
uh, sight to behold. So I would highly suggest that. Like I said, season two is out and I just finished it the other day and it was quite frankly, just as good as season one, which is very hard to beat because season one was, um, brilliant and hilarious and heartbreaking. And, um, the character, uh, Midge Maisel is just so, um, heartwarming and she's brilliant and she's bold. And it's like, you really see yourself in her while still being able to admire this woman who decides who she wants to be and really doesn't take a lot of shit from anybody else. So it's definitely uh, inspiring to watch as well. So um, things I should be doing right now include um, uh, cleaning my room, um, preparing for Drag Me to Hell, which starts this coming weekend. Um, if you haven't heard, I am super duper excited. I got cast on, um, play Louisville's drag me to hell competition, which is pretty much like Dragula. We do, um, challenges for the runway each week. And then the people who are the lowest, um, have to do extermination challenges basically, which are like fear factor type challenges live on stage. Um, so getting excited for that, getting nervous for that, having a lot of feelings about it. Um, but, but, you know, I think it's going to be super duper exciting. Um, just preparing for that. But of course, because it's me, it's super duper 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 nerve wracking. Um, because it's like, there's a lot riding on this and I just want to do so, so well. And, um, I feel like this is, my vibe, you know? Um, so I feel like I'm putting a lot of pressure on myself and I just need to like relax and just let myself like, like trust myself basically, which is always the hardest part. So it's going to be a good, um, challenge for me to learn how to trust my instincts and, um, all of that, because that is so difficult. Um, but as per usual, it's me and there's a myriad of things I should be doing that I'm not doing. Um, I have a few bills I should be paying right now, but I'm not doing that right now because um, this is the easiest thing to do. So I'm going to do it. <laughs> um, yeah. So, I mean, it looks like as of right now, my my schedule for podcasting is probably going to be about once a month if I can manage at least for the next few months um, with Drag Me to Hell going on. Uh, I'm just going to be crazy busy. Um but hopefully uh, I can manage to do uh, one of these each month. And I think like this episode, I, I know exactly what I want to talk about. Next episode, I know exactly what I want to talk about. So I definitely have ideas. I definitely have a lot of content. I just want to make sure that it is um, that it is settled and ready to go. And I want to make sure that I have um, content to pull out, but I'm also giving myself enough time to do exactly. So I feel like... Um, the thing I wanted to talk about today, I, I go through this thing where I'm like, okay, if I can get in my car and, um, on my way to work, talk about a topic from like the minute I get in the car to the time I get to work, which is about 30 to 40 minutes, um, then it's like worth talking about. Right. Because it's like, I was so nervous when I wanted to start this because I was like, well, I want to make sure I have plenty to talk about. And I want to make sure that whatever I talk about is interesting enough or that I have enough content to talk about it free form and not have to go and research or whatever. Um, so I, I did that test with, with this particular episode and I was like, okay, I think, I think I know exactly what I want to talk about. Um, so today I wanted to talk about, 
what I'm calling the drag race dilemma. Um, of course, I'm sure many of you know about drag race. Um, and so kind of my relationship with drag race started, I was, uh, introduced to it in like season three and then kind of watched season three, went back to one and two, um, and then watched season four when it came out, uh, in real time. And I was a fan, you know, after that. So for me, the, the golden age of Queens that I was really inspired by were, um, three, four, five, and seven. Um, I was really invested in, um, you know, Raja, who was high fashion and could just ooze fashion out of her pores. You know what I mean? It was like she was a self-made queen in the sense that it was like anything that she brought on the runway was stuff that she made with her own hands. Um, She really won by sheer, not sheer force, but just talent, right? Same thing with Sharon Needles, where it was like, against all odds, she won. Everything that you saw from her was so uniquely her. She, you know, was so, um, it was, it, she won by, by heart and by, um, by talent, you know, it's very self-made. Same thing with Jinx Monsoon. It was like, she was an underdog. She really came and what, uh, owned the competition and it was all about her talent. You know, that's why she won. Um, uh, Violet Chachki, I know a lot of people don't like her, but she's somebody that I really looked up to as well because it was like she had such a unique style. She had such a unique voice and perspective um, and uh, an amazing presence and, and all that. So I think for me and for many others, the love affair with Drag Race started with this idea that you could come into this competition, be greeted by this loving mother figure that is RuPaul, um, and you don't have to do anything except be yourself and do it well and do it confidently, and you win by sheer talent, right? And I think that's what really attracted me to the show was the idea that it was about being a self-made queen, being a self-made performer, and not about your ability to, um, I don't know, kind of your ability to wear clothes made by somebody else or your inability to sew or your, you know, inability to, to dance or whatever. You know what I mean? Like I was very enthralled with the show simply because here you've got people who are misfits, people who don't belong, people who are underdogs in society and you get to watch them rise above in challenges that, maybe are difficult or frustrating or whatever, and you get to see them create um, something from nothing, right? I think that's what I loved so much about season three um, and season seven as well, because there were so many fashion challenges and there were so many challenges of um, this idea of you, you take fabric and you create something, or you take a script and you create something, a song, a beat, whatever, and you're creating something from nothing. And I'm really so inspired by that idea because I think it, um, just, it it gets me excited because I think I want to do that. I want to be that person. I want to be able to take any challenges given to me and rise above it. Right. And I think that's what made Drag Race so exciting for me and for many other people. 
And now, I mean, after, you know, we're on season uh, 11, it's, they just announced it. Um, congratulations to Nina West, by the way, who is one of the kindest, most hardworking people um, in show business. And I had the pleasure of meeting her not too long ago. Um, just pretty briefly, I did her So You Think You Can Drag competition. Um, and uh, and it was amazing. She was so kind and, and went around the room and talked to everybody and made a point to make you feel really seen and really heard, which is truly, truly remarkable for someone of her stature because she doesn't have to do that, you know? Um, but, uh, you know, we're in season 11. We're going through season um, four of All Stars right now. And I think many of us, and by many of us, I mean queer people and drag performers, um, are sort of feeling this general sense of disenchantment with the show. Um, don't get me wrong. I love it. I still watch it religiously. I still ingest, you know, the content and the YouTube videos. And, and I still have such a passion and love for so many of the queens. And, and I'm very inspired by it. But I think over the years, we've sort of seen this other side of Drag Race, right? You know, we just had, um, just this past uh, year, Pearl came out and said that, that RuPaul said to her, you know, nothing that you say matters unless it's on camera. We're hearing, you know, we've heard a lot of stories from um, Willem and just a lot of interesting stories about what really happens, you know, and how involved the producers are. Because I think that's what made me so in love with the show was that it sort of didn't feel like producers were invested. And not that, you you know, not that there weren't story producers or whatever, but there was definitely this feeling of like, oh, these people are, are winning sheerly by their own talent, by their ability to take trash and turn it into a treasure, right? To take nothing and create something. Um, and now we're sort of seeing this age of um, editing and producers that's just become more and more apparent over time. And I, I personally believe, um, and that it might be my <laughs> naivete, but I personally believe that, that the editors have gotten more and more involved as the show's gotten bigger, as, as the community has grown. It sort of seems like the editors have gotten more and more involved in um, the storyline and kind of pushing storylines. And I think we really have seen that, you know, with All-Stars 3 and, um, you know, it, it sort of seems like we're just seeing in All-Stars 4 as well, like just a lot of um, pushing of storylines or, uh, you know, we just finished the episode uh two weeks ago where Valentina was basically saved because they didn't want her to leave because she makes good TV, not because she's doing well in the competition, not because, you know, she has a great scorecard, but because they knew that somebody was going to send her home. And so they changed the rules to keep her and they brought Latrice back because they knew people would be angry that Latrice had left. Right. So it's no longer about, well, Valentina's scorecard wasn't great. So she had to go. It's now about, well, we want to create this storyline, you know, and there's a lot of different conversations that have gone on around um, Ben de la Creme of, of All-Star Season 3, where Ben de la Creme was notorious about saying, I don't want to do All-Stars. Um, and then suddenly she was on All-Stars. And there were some stories floating around about her saying, or, or somebody, I guess, insinuating that they offered her a deal and said, if you come on all stars, we will promise you this amount of wins. We will promise you 
that you'll stay for this amount of weeks or whatever. And I don't know if that's true or not, because I don't personally think that Ben Creme is the kind of person that would take a deal like that. But it, it bears repeating that, that we have a lot of these stories that float around, you know, um, Jasmine Masters just the other day was, uh, talking, doing, uh, one of her, sh- uh, the, the Chicago, um, viewing parties and they were asking her about her experience and she said, Oh, there was a lot of acting. Oh yeah. There's a lot of girls acting in, in this particular season of all stars. And it's like, so we're seeing that a lot of girls are now playing the game and a lot of girls are kind of, um, shifting to, to what they think the the audience want to see or what the producers want to see. You know, we're hearing, um, from Gia and some of the other girls that, that tea was stirred for the sake of creating TV drama, right? Like the, the drama between Gia and Trinity for Snatch Game was pre-decided. The two of them had already had this discussion. They, they decided they wanted to make a scene for, for TV, right? They wanted to make that scene, make that drama. And it wasn't real drama, you know? And, and Gia came out and said the same thing about Farah and her drama, that it was sort of, they'd already discussed it behind the scenes. And then Gia decided to stir it up on TV to kind of create more of a storyline, you know, as opposed to, you know, untucked was always one thing, but I always sort of felt like, you know, season two, the drama felt very real. If Tyra did feel very, um, for lack of a better term, tyrannical, you know what I mean? Like it felt very like, sure. I'm sure there's lots of drama and whatever, but it felt, um, that a lot of the drama, felt fairly organic, right? So all this to say, basically, a lot of people that I talked to were just sort of at this place where we feel frustrated. And that's pretty normal for a show this old. You know, I mean, not that Drag Race is old, but I mean, it is reaching this place now where it's probably about halfway through its run. We don't see a lot of TV shows make it past their 10th season, their 15th season, their 20th season, you know? And I mean, I think... Project Runway and America's Next Top Model, which are similar shows, have run for about 20 seasons or so, but they lose their stride. They they lose um, their vibe. And, uh, you know, America's Next Top Model tried to revitalize and tried to do more, and it really just kind of flopped, you know? And I think, for me personally, I'm a little afraid to see that happen to Drag Race because I think... Drag Race is amazing um, in the sense that it has given us such a platform and it's really put drag in the society, you know, proper, right? Um, And I think for me personally, there's definitely this fear that if Drag Race goes away or Drag Race dies out, what then happens to us? And not that we don't continue, but it does help to have this sort of national thing that is... Um, pushing our, I don't want to say agenda, but it's its putting us in the public eye and making us a commodity for consumption, right? It's making people say, oh, drag queens. Okay, cool. Well, let's go to a drag show, you know? And not to say that, that it is all good, because I think a lot of people who have never seen a drag show then have expectations that, about what they're going to see. And they don't, especially for me, they don't know, I don't do splits, I don't do a lot of dance tricks. And so then they are like, well, you're not a very good drag queen because you don't do 12 shiplams in a row and that's not drag, so you're not very good. You know what I mean? And that's kind of what Drag Race has built up in a lot of ways, that it's sort of this idea that 
well, you didn't, you didn't, uh, do a wig reveal. So it's not real drag or whatever. Um, so, so portions like that are really frustrating, but I think on a whole, it's very nice that Drag Race has kind of put us in the public eye. But then we come into issues, um, which is like my main point. We come into issues like what we're dealing with, with Gia right now. Um, and that's kind of what I want to talk about today is because I am very pro, um, trans people on Drag Race, you know? And I've heard a few differing opinions and I kind of wanted to address it because it was something I was really struggling with when, um, when they announced that she was going to be on all stars Four, I was like, great, that's amazing. You know, and uh, the, the same thing with Sonique, um, for the Christmas special. I mean, that we've kind of been asking for that for a long time. And again, we've kind of seen this difference with RuPaul, right? Um, whereas, you know, season three, four, five, whatever, RuPaul felt very motherly and felt very loving. Um, and then over the last few seasons, that seems like it's kind of gone away or run its course. Um, or maybe it was all sort of just for the TV. I don't know. Um, but RuPaul basically said a while ago in uh, an article, um, he said, and I quote, Drag loses its sense of danger and its sense of irony once it's not men doing it. Because at its core, it's a social statement and it's a big F you to male-dominated culture. Um, so basically, it's like, it just seems like there's this idea that, you know, women don't belong and trans women don't belong. People of other genders are cheating because they may have body um, modifications or the transformation is just different because it's not completely male to female, um, which in and of itself is problematic. In and of itself, it's transphobic and it's um, sexist because you're basically saying women and trans women and non-binary people are not working as hard because the transformation is not there. And the minute you kind of look a little bit deeper at that, the funny thing about it is when I first heard this argument, I guess I was like, well, I mean, I guess I can see that I don't agree with it, but I guess I can see what he's saying that if you've already, you know, done, uh, gotten your breasts done, then that's one less step you have to take. But the problem with that is then you, you're saying that, but it's very clear that that's not actually the case because you look at people like Detox, um, who doesn't necessarily have to wear hip pads all the time, who doesn't have to contour her cheeks as hard. You look at people like Trinity Taylor, Alaska, you know, I mean, more and more we see queens that have gotten, um, facial reconstruction or, um, lip plumpers or whatever. I mean, they've gotten work done to make their job easier because they're doing it every day. And to that same argument, then you can say queens who shave off their eyebrows are cheating, right? Well, the transformation's just not there, right? And we know that that's silly because it's up to you and it's up to your personal, um, your, it's up to you to decide how you want to transform. And, you know, Valentina decided she wanted to shave off her eyebrows. Great. That's her decision to make, to make her transformation, um, successful, 
right? Same thing with Trinity, same thing with, um, you know, Detox and Chad Michaels, you know, Chad Michaels has made her entire career off of her facial reconstruction surgery that makes her look like Cher. And it's like, that's what she does. And it makes her job easier so that she can do it five nights a week or whatever and, and do it successfully and do it, um, efficiently. So in and of itself, that argument is kind of null and void. Um, because that's what I hear across the board. I hear a lot of people say, well, the transformation's just not the same. It just doesn't seem fair. And it's like, I originally thought that, but then when I looked deeper, I was like, that may, that's like my insecurities because I look at my own body and I look at the fact that it's like, I have to spend that half hour on, um, contouring and creating breasts because I don't have any, I have to spend, um, my time doing makeup to cover my, five o'clock shadow, which I have like all the fucking time. And I, you know, I have to shave my back and I have to shave my knuckles. And it's like all these things that make my transformation more difficult. It is easy to look at a bio queen and say, wow, they don't have to work as hard. But in getting to the point where I have talked to and interacted with bio queens, because when I had that that thought process. I hadn't really performed with other bio queens. I know that they work as hard as I, uh, you know, just as hard as I do. Uh, I perform pretty regularly with a girl named Trailer Parks, um, an amazing bio queen here in Cincinnati. And she, I know she works just as hard as I do. She spends the exact same amount of time on makeup as I do. She works very hard, you know, and she works hard. She, um, you know, gets, she spends a lot of money on her wigs and on her costumes. She spends a lot of time on her concepts. I mean, the same thing could be said for, um, Creme Fatale, who's one of my favorite, um, uh, bio queens and, um, uh, what's her name? Venus Envy, an amazing queen from Orlando. Um, it's, it's sort of this misconception that is steeped deeply in sexism because the idea is kind of pushing real women down or pushing trans women down or pushing non-binary people down to say, you don't work as hard as I do because my insecurity is you already have breasts or you already have lip fillers or, you know, you don't have to do, um, you don't have to wear fake hips. So therefore it, it makes me feel inferior because I then have to do all this extra work that you may not have to do. But I think what I came to realize over time and what I came to realize in working with trans queens, um, is that you don't know what that person is spending their time working on, right? So where I do have to wear hip pads and where I do have to cinch and contour and shave and do all this extra stuff, they might have to do that. You know, they might have, they might be narrowing their legs. They might spend the time that I spend. Um, they might spend the exact same amount of time that I spend on getting ready. They might not, you know, that's totally fair too. But it's sort of a, a very, very weak conversation to have, right? Um, and so I find it kind of disappointing to hear it. So then, of course, we came to this place where, you know, we were discussing it as a community, and that's great. Um, but I think what I kind of came to to feel was that at this point, the show is no longer a conversation for RuPaul, right? And not to say that RuPaul isn't the figurehead, absolutely, but it is the only show on television right now, on, you know, American television and worldwide, 
where people consume drag queens on a daily basis, right? So, I mean, I've heard a lot of queens that are cisgendered in this whole conversation say, well, you know, I just, I don't want, you know, trans queens there and I just don't think it's fair or blah, blah, blah. And I mean, I, I think many of those people are are saying it, not trying to be um, ignorant or whatever, but the fact of the matter is, is that, listen, whether, you know, VH1 or World of Wonder or RuPaul like it, the show is one of a kind at this point. It is a phenomenon. And it has done an amazing job at educating people about the experience of living as a drag queen. It has educated so many people, inspired so many people, helped so many people come together, that at this point, in my professional quote-unquote opinion, it has a responsibility to the community to do what's best for everybody, you know, and whether, whether your personal opinion is, you know, excuse me, trans people belong or they don't. Um, the problem is that it just, it just doesn't matter, you know, because it's like, whether you like it or not, if you walk into any club, if you're working on a regular basis as a performer, nine times out of 10, you're working with at least one non-binary person, at least one trans person, at least, you know, there's plenty of new bio queens, drag kings. And so it's like sort of silly to me because it's like, sure, when I first started watching the show, I hadn't stepped foot in a um, dressing room. But now that I've you know, been kind of out in the scene for a, a, a minute and am working a lot more regularly. It's like more often than not, I'm working with trans women, you know, um, more often than not. I mean, a good portion of our, um, odd crew, I think what four out of six of us identify as non-binary, you know? And so it's like so many of us are, um, gender non-conforming, um, and so it's like, for me, I sort of feel like it really feels truly unfair to give America a different picture than what's really happening in the drag scene. Because that, that sort of, in my opinion, was what Drag Race was all about. It was all about taking these amazing artists and showing their heart, showing their truth, showing their struggles and, and showing their stories. Because, you know, we were able to see amazing queens like Raja and Sharon, um, who were people who were, you know, just not, um, not fair, uh, as far as their life went, you know, they were people who didn't fit in and, uh, maybe couldn't be honest with their family. Um, you know, Kim Chi is a great explanation of that. To my knowledge, she still hasn't told her mom that she does drag. And yet she is one of the most amazing and creative drag artists out there. And she gets to showcase her talent on a worldwide stage now. But her mom still doesn't know and may not accept that. And so it's shedding light on the queer perspective and the queer experience of being one person in your everyday life, being an amazing artist, and then shedding light on your your backstory, shedding light on the pain that you've been through, shedding light on the ignorance that you've experienced because of who you are. 
And the show has educated so many people about our stories. So to me, it sort of feels unfair to say, I only want to shed light on one story, right? You know, we've had 10 seasons at this point. It isn't fair to say, I only want to continue to shed light on cisgendered experiences. We've had those stories, you know? We've had a lot of experiences and and discussions because of the show. That's amazing. But we have a responsibility to the whole of the community and to America to show what a real drag um, community is like. Because it isn't just cisgendered men dressing up as women. That is one side of the story. And it's really only, you know one-fifth or one-sixth of the story, because really when you look around any good dressing room, it's full of diversity, you know? It is full of people of color and trans people, people who are um, gender non-conforming or, um, you know, biological women, biological men, whatever. Um, and, And that's what makes drag an exciting art and what makes drag good, because... If you're just watching, you know, one type of artist, it just doesn't, it's not as rich, right? So for me, I feel like that's just, whether you like it or not, the way to keep this show evolving and the way to keep the show in the public eye is to continue to revitalize. And I think the best way to do that is to allow trans women, to allow, you know, drag kings, um, to allow biological women, uh, and it's sort of a shame to me that we sort of have this discussion of like, well, you know, it's just, it's RuPaul's show. And it's like, that's great. You know, RuPaul does an amazing job. Don't get me wrong. But at this point, it isn't just about one voice anymore, you know, and that voice is a voice of a cisgendered man. And that's fine. You know, he is a, a legend and an icon, but I also sort of feel like we're the ones putting money in your pocket. We're the ones supporting you. And so it's your responsibility to continue that conversation in the community and continue that conversation with the straight community. Because guess what? There's so many straight people that watch the show that are ingesting it, that are excited about it. So many of the younger generation of my generation and the generations before are really excited about the show. And it's a great idea to educate them because guess what? That's the future. So maybe you know, let's say they see their first ever trans woman on TV, hear her story. And then in 10 years, we don't have to hear about, you know, trans people being slaughtered. We don't have to hear about politicians, which we hear about every year, politicians saying, let's round up all the trans people and put them on an island or whatever. And no joke, almost every year that happens where out of left field, some, some, angry Republican man decides that he wants to make it okay for gay people to be shot. Like, and it is remarkable to me that we saw those discussions and not to say that this one show can change the world. However, it already has, you know? And so for me, I sort of feel like, Hey, it's your responsibility to, to help all of us. And not that you have to, but what an amazing thing it would be to, educate more people, to continue this conversation. What an amazing responsibility and what change you could make. And let's be honest, nothing can last forever. So eventually the show has to end. 
So you could continue on the path road you're on now, and the show will probably end sooner, or you can revitalize it, allow more voices, and continue this conversation and educate more people, right? Excite more people, inspire more people, you know, because already we've had such an amazing response. So that's kind of my two cents on it because I really struggled with it. And it's been an evolution for me, especially as I've, I've come to educate myself about my own gender identity. And I mean, being able to figure out what that looks like for me and then in growing um, as a performer and walking into queer spaces, you know, you see so many different types of people. You are interacting with so many different types of people. And so to me, it sort of feels like a shame because it's like, I have so many uh, wonderful and talented friends that don't fit under the cisgendered um, drag queen stereotype that deserve their voice to be heard. You know, um, drag kings have been as part of this just as long as we have. Trans women were basically the ones who started Stonewall. And it's like, their voices deserve to be heard. And maybe if we were able to educate straight people, we would be able to um, make a change, you know? And already, again, like this show has already done that. So continue that legacy for our trans sisters and brothers for um, our lesbian sisters, for our um, biological women and men sisters and brothers and and our drag king brothers. And it's like all of these people are our family and all of these people are surrounding us on a daily basis. And I guess I just want to give them a voice too. Um, which then leads me to my next point. You know, Gia came on the show and I was really, you know, excited. And I was like, I can't wait for a trans woman to finally get the chance to be out and proud. Because up until this point, again, something that's left me disenchanted is hearing stories of people like Jiggly Caliente, who was asked to stop transitioning to get on the show. Um, Peppermint, I don't know if she was asked to stop transitioning, but she was not able to have that conversation until later on during the season. And she was already a trans woman, but they presented her as a cisgendered man until she came out. Uh, Monica, Be- Monica Beverly Hills is the same way. She had to lie to get on the show. She was already transgender, but she had to lie to get on the show to say she was cisgender, which then led her down this incredibly emotional path road. Um, and, and the thing of, of it is, I mean, I don't, I'm not the most um, educated when it comes to testosterone and hormones and what that does to you. But from what I know, it can be a really dangerous thing to go off your hormones um, because you're adding in all these extra hormones and then to just stop cold really messes up your system. So it's a huge shame because so many of these trans people have been asked to put themselves in danger to get on a show and they've been asked to play a part that's not really them, you know, and, and certainly you can play a part on TV and be the villain or be the underdog or whatever, but that's by choice. Whereas these people are asked to not be themselves and not be themselves to the fullest. And therefore it kind of paralyzes them in a way that other contestants aren't having to deal with. Um, so it was amazing to hear that, you know, RuPaul was apologizing and putting Gia on the show and he put Sonique on, um, the show as well. And then I went through this really weird conversation with myself because of course many of us saw Gia came on the show 
And it was made very clear that Gia was a villain, um, not only by edit, but by, by her own choices, right? She was making a lot of um, choices in, in the storyline, quote unquote, to, you know, terrorize Farah, um, to put others down or whatever. And my knee-jerk reaction was like, really? Not only to Gia, but also to the editors, because part of me felt like you're giving the editors um, something that they can say, see, this is why we don't put trans women on TV. See, this is why they don't belong in this show. And then every time a trans woman wants to be a part of it, they can say, well, see what happened with Gia? She was just really mean. So you lost your shot, you know? Um, And same thing with, you know, straight audiences. Maybe if you've never seen a trans woman before, maybe you'd say, wow, well, I've never seen a trans woman before, but this one seems really mean. Um, And I really felt that strongly. Like I felt very like you have a responsibility to be a strong voice. You have a responsibility to be a positive voice and, and you're not, um, you're not helping our case. You're not helping our cause. And, you know, you should be a force of positivity and you're just not, you know, you're creating negativity and you're, you're making a, you're putting a bad impression in people's mind. Um, and I really struggled with that, you know, because I, I felt deep down that I was like, something's wrong with that statement because, um, you know, be that as it may, we don't look at cisgendered people and say that, you know, when a man is problematic on the bachelorette, we don't say all straight men are evil because this specific man is a pig, right? We don't say that about straight women. You know, maybe we say all people from Texas are evil or whatever. You know what I mean? Like maybe it's more minuscule than that, but we don't look at entire groups of people um, that are not minorities and say, wow, they're a horrible person because of the person they play on TV. Um, Obviously, I think with minorities that happens a lot where it's easy to say, well, I have this preconceived notion about black people or Mexicans and I can then look at what I'm seeing on reality television and say, well, see, they're all bad. They're all terrible. I knew it. And I guess that was my deep fear was that it was like, here we have trans women. I mean, every year trans women are murdered, you know? I mean, for the last four years, we've had at least 12 women every year, people of color that have been murdered, you know, the trans women. And it's like every year I just get so upset about it because it's just like, when is this going to end? When are gonna people going to realize that we're we're people too, and that we have our own struggles and that it just isn't fair for us to be gunned down for who we are. Um, so it's this internal struggle I have of feeling like, you know, I make a point when I go out every day, I know I'm a queer person and I know people are going to look at me and say, wow, you're a queer person. So when I go through the Starbucks line, when I am, um, walking through target, my goal is to be as nice as possible. Um, and that also comes from growing up, you know, in a Christian world that I saw so many people who waved their Christian flag proudly, but then were rude or unkind or were just rotten people deep, deep down. And I told myself, I was like, I never want to be that person. I always want to be the person that people think about when they're in the voting booth. I want them to think about me and I want them to go, I want you to have rights. Maybe I don't understand your experience, but I understand you're a kind person. You're a gentle person or whatever. Um, and 
I feel that that's my responsibility and I still feel that. Um, and in going through therapy, I've learned that it's like, I, I hold myself to too high of a standard, um, to behave a certain way, to be a good, um, a good image for people. And not to say that I'm going to stop doing that by any means. But what I realized through this whole Gia thing was that I felt so frustrated because I was like, come on, Gia, you are, you are getting this once in a lifetime opportunity and you are opening that door. Uh, So be a good, um, you know, make a good image for us so that RuPaul and World of Wonder and VH1 and straight people and whoever can see that we're just like them and that we deserve an opportunity and that we deserve our words to be heard. And um, I really struggled with that. And and in part, I still struggle with that and I still kind of feel that way because I do really feel like that's a great opportunity and don't squander it on petty TV drama. But the more I talked about it with people, and Jinx Monsoon talked about it on um, the Race Chaser podcast, that it's like, well, if I am going to say and this is me, not Jinx, if I'm going to say that every voice deserves to be heard, that means that every voice deserves to be heard. And that means that, you know, there are going to be trans people that maybe aren't the nicest people ever. Right. And it shouldn't be their responsibility to have to do that. And I think in my mind, I hold queer people and people of color to a higher standard because it's like, well, we have so much to lose. Whereas so many other people, I don't hold them to that same standard right? I don't look at, you know, the straight man that I see walking down the road and maybe I might feel a certain way about it, but I mean, it's like his bad behavior doesn't necessarily mean that all straight men are bad. And I know that's a whole conversation of itself, but, um, um, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's interesting and frustrating and disappointing because it's like, we really shouldn't be held to these high standards. And deep down, I feel that I'm held to a higher standards partially because I hold myself to it. Um, but partially because I feel like that's survival, you know, because I want to make a good impression because I want to be this, um, for lack of better term, like minister for, for our people and for our community. Um, but what I realized through all this is that it's like, that's all well and good. And I do want to hold myself to a high standard, but it also is unfair that we don't get to have bad days, you know, that, that if I go out tomorrow and throw my Chipotle burrito bowl in an employee's face, I am, or I feel that I am then doing a disservice to my community. And that feels really unfair, you know, and not to say that I want to be that person cause I don't, but it isn't fair for us to say, you may have one voice and that one voice is, hi, I'm a nice queer person or hi, I'm a well-behaved trans person or whatever. And not to say that you shouldn't behave yourself, but, um, but what I realized about all this is that yes, I want to be held to a higher standard and I want other people to as well, but it really just isn't fair, um, to put people in this, this box. I mean, on TV, especially to say, you can't be a villain. You can't, you know, have a bad day, you know? And in hearing Gia talk, especially after the fact, she definitely has, has said like, this is my TV character. My TV character is a villain and it's a persona. And that's what I was brought there to do. Um, and you know, we've heard 
through her that like her and RuPaul had a confrontation and she felt that she was not being treated very respectfully. Um, and she wasn't really wanted there. And that's a real shame, you know, because the door was open for her, but it also was opened in such a way that it was like almost sort of like doomed for her to fail or doomed to edit her a certain way or whatever. Um, and I think that that's what I was very worried about was I was like, it's so unfair that, that she can't play a villain. You know, why can't she? We don't look at Fifi O'Hara and say, oh, all, you know, X, Y, Z people are, are bad. You know, we don't do that because we just look at her and say, oh, she's just a villain. You know, that's the character she's playing or that's the person she is or whatever. But I guess for me, my deep concern is, oh my gosh, people are going to see this trans woman on TV and they're going to say, oh, all trans people are bitter or all trans people love drama or whatever. And really in, in, in all honesty, I've learned that it's like, as much as I want to hold myself to a higher standard, not everyone else wants to do that, right? And it isn't fair that we don't get to play the villain sometimes. It isn't fair that we don't get to have a story arc where we evolve because in my mind, and I think in the mind of society, we have to kind of be in our place and we have to be, you know, nice, kind and cordial and thank everyone for everything that we get. And thank you for not trying to shoot me today. I really appreciate that, you know? Um, so I don't know. I mean, it, it's been an interesting journey for me just because I think um, in her time on Drag Race, it was a complete 180 for me to learn from others and to have an evolution as somebody who is on the trans spectrum to go from feeling like, wow, you have responsibility and you really screwed up to thinking, well, it isn't fair, you know? And not that I, not that I think that you should misbehave yourself on TV or whatever, but, um, it's interesting, you know, it's interesting because I don't hold the bachelor to the same standards that I hold drag race. You know, I hold drag race to higher standards because it's an education tool because it is a phenomenon but I don't hold American Idol to that same, you know, um, standard because, well, it's straight culture or it's already acceptable. And so the storylines that they get to choose are immediately accepted, whereas I feel like we have to work a lot harder. Um, so it's just, it's been a really interesting um, conversation to have with others and conversation to have with myself um, because... Uh, I think it's, especially in growing up and everything, I mean, I think with the way that I grew up and then the way that I came out and um, everything that I've been through, I think I really thought I had a responsibility to show my parents, like, okay, I am out and proud, so therefore I have to be, like, um, nice and mentally stable and I can't, you know be, I can't have suicidal thoughts. I can't hurt myself. I can't do any of that. And I can't show them that side of myself because then if I do, it will just be more fuel for the fire to say, oh, well, see, I told you being gay, it's bad. It's bad for you. See? Um, so I really put that wall up. And now that I'm in therapy, I'm learning that wall has never really come down for me. And I have that wall up with so many people in my life where, I don't tell them those things because I almost sort of feel like I have this responsibility to be strong and funny and kind or whatever. And it's like, I don't ever allow myself to have that bad day, 
you know, and I can watch somebody else break down and I can watch somebody else lose their temper. Um, and I don't hold them to the same standard that I hold myself. And that's just been a really interesting journey because it's like it, your behavior shouldn't necessarily dictate your ability to survive, you know? And I mean, obviously that's a statement that kind of has a few holes because it's like, well, if you're Hitler, yes, your behavior should, um, <laughs> dictate that you shouldn't be alive anymore. But, um, but I mean, as minorities, it shouldn't be that our ability to behave ourselves, it shouldn't be that, you know? Whereas when I look at so many Christians, I know it's like, I'll never forget when, um, when I worked at Chili's, we worked right by the vineyard. So we got a lot of church people on Sundays and these two women came in, I was hosting and I tried to sit them somewhere. They didn't want to sit there. I tried to sit them another place. They didn't want to sit there either. And they decided they were going to walk me to where they wanted to get, they, where they wanted to sit, which is not how that works at all. You actually don't get to decide where you want to sit in a restaurant, even if you think you do. Um, because I had, I think I double sat this particular waiter. So I was basically triple sitting them, um, in their section and they were alone in that section, but those women wanted to sit there. And so therefore they made that decision and it put me, you know, I, I did nothing. I, there's nothing I could do. Then they proceeded to give their waiter hell because they weren't getting good service. And it's like, okay, well I put you where I wanted you to go because that waiter could spend more time with you. Whereas this waiter is already too busy, but you made that decision and it's not their fault and it's not my fault because you decided what you wanted. So they, they sent food back. They were hellish to deal with. I mean, I felt so bad for the waiter. Um, and it just left a bad taste in my mouth. And then at the end of their visit with us, they left and I went to clean off their table and they left two tracks, um, on the, uh, on the table. And if you don't know, tracks are like the little pamphlets that you get that say like, have you tried Jesus? And I was like, you're such a horrible, horrible PR agent for your, your Christianity. You know, so many Christians I know are so worried about this ability of like, I want everyone to know the name of the Lord. And it's like, actually, what are you telling them about God? You know, because if you weigh, you know, 500 pounds, but you're trying to sell me a weight loss program, I might think that you're pulling one over on me, you know, and not to like fat shame or anything, but like, it, it feels that's like such an apt metaphor when I think about it, because like every time I've had this conversation with myself, because it's like, I, because I grew up like that and because I've had so many bad experiences with Christians, I want to be the antithesis of that because I do want to go out in the world and I want people to think that I'm, um, kind and genuine. And I want people to feel like, you know, I'm brightening their day or whatever. And it's something that's very, very important to me. But in doing that, I think there's also a balance that it's like, I also then have to allow myself what I don't allow myself. And it's like, I then have to allow myself the ability to have a bad day. I have to allow myself the ability to lose my temper once in a while. And, oh, I don't know, cry in front of people once in a while. Um, my girl, Pinky Pagan called me out the other day. She said, oh, I know you. She said, you're the type of girl where you schedule your cries. And I said, Oh, she got me gal because I so do like, I won't cry in front of other people. Um, unless I'm performing, I don't, I do not cry in front of people unless I can help it. Um, and it was like, she got me gal. Like 
so many of my close friends have never seen me cry. So many of my close friends have never seen me full on lose my temper, you know? And I think that stems from this narrative that guess what? Everyone else can lose their temper, but I can't because I'm my life or my experience or my voice doesn't hold the same currency as, you know, my friends or, or whatever. And it's like, that is laid deep in so many queer people and in so many minorities that it's like, you have to behave, you have to do this, that, and the other in order to stay in line, in order to have rights, in order to, you know, have a voice, you have to be, behave yourself in a certain way. And I'm starting to realize that it's like, as much as I do want to behave myself and be kind and genuine to other people, and not that I'm ever going to stop doing that, but that there's also a balance. And that in my own mind, something I want to work on is I don't believe I'm equal to straight people, you know? And, and that is beyond like law. Like I know by law, my life is not, um, equal to straight people. But when I look at a straight person, I feel that there's a hierarchy there that I'm below them, that I, I don't, my voice doesn't matter, you know? Um, I'm a non-binary person. I'm a, you know, very femme drag queen. So I feel like, oh, my voice doesn't matter as much as yours does. And you deserve to be heard and I don't, you know? And like, that's society, you know, that's society that's been drilled into me from an early age that if you as a, um, queer person have one bad day, you are putting a bad taste in the mouth of the people that decide whether or not you survive, you know? And I mean, I think especially growing up in, um, in the time of like, I mean, from coming out to where we are today, you know, the legalization of queer marriage, I felt that I was like, I have to behave myself because I want other people to vote so that I can get married. And that just isn't fair. You know what I mean? If I, if I have one bad day, then my friend or my coworker or, you know, whoever will look at me and say, wow, see, that person's just unstable and they just don't deserve to have the right to get married. And it's sort of this choiceless choice, you know, because I think, um, I, I think that actually does happen. You know, I think I've seen that happen in my own life where I've judged someone by who I think they are and said, well, I guess that's how, you know, so-and-so is or whatever. And it's like, it's so easy to prejudge someone to say, oh, well, that's the type of person they are. And well, see, they were obnoxious or they were rude. And so therefore all people are that way. You know, I'm that way with Christians. Although I've had, you know, 18 years of experience with Christians. So um, I would say that my judgments are fairly apt on most occasions. But um, but it's, it's the same type of behavior um, that just... It's interesting that we're, we're um, programmed the way that we are. It is. Because it's like we're programmed to to survive. And we're programmed to look at other people and say this Mexican person was rude to me. So therefore I'm going to, in order to protect myself, count them all out. Right. Oh, all people like, you know, all Mexicans are like this or all women are like this or all, 
you know, men over 50 are like this. And it's like, it is primal, you know, and that kind of ties into what we were talking about um, in my first episode is it's like, it's a primal experience we have as human beings. And I think I'm really fascinated by primal, um, the primal brain that we all have deep, deep down, because it's like, we make a lot of decisions based on fear and based on survival instinct. When in reality, we don't really live in that world anymore. We live in an evolved society. We don't have to count entire groups of people out to protect ourselves because we do live in this time where it's like, like my mom was asking me about pronouns the other day and she was just saying like, well, how am I supposed to know how to call you? I mean, and I was like, why don't you just ask that person? You know what I mean? Like she was like, well, I think this person might be a lesbian, but I don't know. They might be transgender. I just can't tell. And I'm like, well, it's their responsibility to tell you. And I've seen a lot of people that get kind of hissy fitty about that. Cause they're like, well, what am I just supposed to just, just go up to every person? Like they're an individual. And it's like, yeah, maybe when you meet somebody, you don't make prejudgments about them, about what they want to be called, about what they, uh, identify as, uh, about what their life looks like. Um, again, it's like, it's survival because we see that person has a butch haircut. Therefore they must be a lesbian, lesbian, the, uh, that person, um, has a neck tattoo. So therefore they've probably been to jail, you know? And it's like, we make these assumptions oftentimes only to find out that like that person got a neck tattoo to remember their grandma or whatever. You know what I mean? It's like, we just don't know what other people are like. I had that experience happen to me just the other day during, um, one of our odd shows, I was talking to someone in the audience and again, I'm a non-binary person. I'm very much on that wavelength. And I kept calling this person in the audience, he, and they came up to me afterwards. Um, shout out to Hal <laughs> is their name. And uh, they were like, just so you know, I'm actually not a boy. And I was like, oh, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> like, and it was just like, I should know better, you know? Um, and we all should know better. We all should be evolved enough to know that it's like, we're not fucking cavemen anymore. We're not, you know, in a time where we're, you know, we're not primal anymore you know and I think we're obviously as humans we're built that way but it's like we as people are smart enough to know the difference between a person behaving on television and their real life and I I'm in that boat as well because I think I'm it's so easy for me to take people like that face value and take situations like that face value so food for thought um yeah so I'll be back probably sometime next month um, the next few months are going to be pretty crazy for me with Drag Me to Hell. And if you want to come down, um, Drag Me to Hell starts next month. Um, it starts uh, next Sunday, or actually this Sunday, um, which is February 3rd, I believe. And I think if all goes as planned, we run till April, I think. Um, so we do like eliminations every week. Um, and it's very similar to drag race, very similar to Dragula. So if you want to come out and support us, me and my sister Pinky Pagan are, are doing it. Um, if you want to catch me in Cincinnati, I work at main event. I'm on cast there. So I'm there. Um, I usually am there like once every two weeks. Um, sometimes, you know, two or three times every two weeks. Um, but, uh, all my schedule and stuff is usually up, um, on any of my social medias. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm, uh, official sticks in. I, put a lot of my private thoughts on there. So if you want to, you know, hear my deep, deep thoughts, that's where you want to go. 
Um, on Instagram, I am Sticks and Stones, and you can find, uh, find me on Facebook as well under Sticks and Stones. Um, I also run the Odd Show, so if you want to come see Odd, we have plenty of shows. We're um, doing an awesome show with uh, Ursula Majors, which will be Ursula Majors and Stevie Dicks, which is um, February 6th at uh, Mixwells in Northside. Um, and then we are back at the Mock Bee on the 21st uh, of February. So really excited to do that. Um, yeah, I mean, it's going to be a crazy month. It's going to be a busy month. Wish me luck with Drag Me to Hell. I really, really, really want this. So until next time, stay weird, much love, have courage, be kind, all that jazz. See you later, creepies. 